If you could turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we'll look at verses 28 through 32 today. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28, 32. And this is God's word. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let us pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we once again come before you. Father, we come empty-handed before your throne. And not only that, we come with a hunger. We come, Father, in need of something greater something greater than what could fill our belly, greater than what we can see. Father, there is a void in every one of us that can only be filled by the glory and the joy and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that even now as we look into your word, Father, we do not take it lightly. We do not merely listen to a word of man, but Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit use these words and penetrate it into our hearts so that our hearts may not only be convicted and that you may show clearly our sins and our need for you, but also at the same time that you may bring us joy and hope and comfort in the gospel of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. To shed a little context for the passage we have before us, in Matthew chapter 21, we see the last chapters in the gospel of Matthew. And in fact, what we see is the final days of Jesus Christ leading up to the climactic moment for the very reason why he came on earth in the first place. And we see in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1, verse 21, it tells us why Jesus came. And in verse 21, it says, to save his people from their sins. And I know we all know what the story is. He dies on the cross for us. And as he is leading up to this climactic moment, in those days, he actually speaks to various people. And among the various people that he speaks to are the teachers of the law, the religious leaders. And he speaks to them in parables. Later, in Mark chapter 4 and other areas, Uh, in the other gospel, that tells us why Jesus speaks to us or speaks to them in parables. And it's twofold. One is so that those who have been given the clarity and the true vision to see what Jesus is speaking, so that they may see more clearly about themselves, about who God is, about their need, 
and about the glorious end that Jesus brings, but also for those who have ear, who have eyes, and yet cannot see and cannot hear. And parables are given to them so that they see more clearly. But not only is is the parables for them to see more clearly, but actually these stories are meant for people who hear it to respond. It gives them a position to respond to the parable. And the response is either humbly recognizing what they now clearly see of themselves, of who God is, or to respond by being stubborn and be unwilling to recognize who God is, to be unwilling to recognize who they are in their sin. The parable that we have today is no different. The story of two sons, it shows us about two sons who failed to be good children to their father. And, it, and, and it's supposed to invoke a call for the people back then to respond, but also for us to respond to the parable. Three years ago, I received the joy of being a father for the first time. And for the last three years, I've learned much about my daughter. And more importantly, I learned a lot about myself and in my shortcomings, but also what joys it brings me to have a child. All the daddies, she's starting to learn how to, to, to talk, form sentences, have a will of herself, have her own personality. It's amazing. But among the greatest joys of a father is, a, is an obedient child. Now, I know a lot of the parents in the room may agree with me. Of all the other joys, an obedient child is the one that brings the most joy to a parent. And you may know the frustrations of a child who says yes, but ends up not doing something afterwards. Whether it's doing your homework, or cleaning your room, or whatever other tasks or chores that you may have for them. This is a little bit more rare, but you may or you might be in this room and might know what it's like to experience a child who says no from the beginning, but ends up doing it. I'm sure that's very rare, but if you have that, then kudos to you. I can't relate to either situation because our child is in a state of no from the beginning and and no to the end. (laughs) But nevertheless, you don't need to be a parent to know what an ideal child looks like. You see, an ideal child is the one who says yes from the beginning and who says yes to the end. Not only do they say yes with their words, but it's yes with their actions. In this parable, we are introduced to two sons. Neither one of them are ideal. Neither one of them fit the mold of the son who says yes from the beginning and yes to the end. And in their failure, in their own failures, we re- what is revealed is a broken relationship that they have with their father. And what Jesus is hoping to paint for the religious leaders at the time, and also for us today, is this. How do we see ourselves in these sons? Which one of these sons are we this morning? And so as we look and take a closer look at these two sons, we're going to see and detail and look more into detail about, about them by asking these two questions. What is their failure 
and how must they respond in their failure? And as you have your outline, we're going to look at two sons. I like to call the first son the rebellious son, and the second son we'll see is the religious son. So the first son, the rebellious son, what is his failure? If we look at verse 28 in the passage, it tells us that the father tells the son to go to the vineyard, and he tells him, I will not. It is a blatant and immediate no. And though it may be a simple no, underneath the no is a heart that has a lack of care for his father's commandment. Not only that, he has a disrespect for his father's authority. And in fact, he is absolutely disinterested in his relationship with his father. He could care less about the father, let alone his command. And we don't have to be experts in first century Jewish culture to know what sort of offense this is. A while back, they, I don't know, I'm not really on YouTube, but a while back there used to be a YouTube prank among millions of others. And this particular one was called the Shut Up Mom prank. And the way it goes is this. The prank is a mom will tell the child to do something, a chore of some sorts. And the prank is that the, the, the daughter or the son will say no, but in a very negative sort of way, in a very disrespectful sort of way. But the prank is that the video that's being recorded is to see the father's response to that no. And you can go and look at it, and it's funny, and it's lighthearted for the most part. But what's interesting to me is that no matter how many of these videos you see, regardless of the father's age, ethnicity, culture, regardless of the differences in the father, the one response is the same. Disrespect to a parent is uncalled for and will not be tolerated. See, the, Jew, the ancient Jewish culture had the same response. But their response though it may have been as extreme to earthly fathers, they knew the severity of what it meant to be disobedient to a heavenly father. And in verses 31 and 32 of our passage, Jesus sheds light in this category of rebellious sons by shedding light on two different people at the time. We have the prostitutes and the tax collectors. They were considered the lowest of society. Not only what they did in their own particular sins, but that sin was a direct rebellion of the heavenly and glorious Father. Because they lived for themselves, and their interest was not in God, but in their own self-promotion, their own self-praise, and self-gratification. You see, every society in history has this category of rebellious sons, if I can call the scum of society, the lowest of the low. Even today, we are surrounded in our news of various people that could be considered the lowest of society, the evil people, those who rebel against God. Some of them, for example, could be those who murder unborn babies child molesters, those who take advantage of the weak and poor, 
those who invade other countries and kill civilians. You see, every society has their list. And on top of that, every individual has their list. I can give you a moment, and it wouldn't take long, to ask you to think about who you think the most evil people in this world are. And I'm sure it wouldn't take long for you to have a list of people. And I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not here to condemn that those evil people and what they're doing are bad, and they are. But I don't want us to be so trained and so quick to have a list in our heads of other people and forget that we ourselves are the rebellious son. You see, it's not the severity of our sin that makes us rebellious, but any sin, anything that is contrary to God, anything does not recognize the Father and His commandments, and in any degree that disregards the Father would categorize anyone to be the rebellious son. You see, any failure to recognize his authority, his power, his goodness, his holiness, and his faithfulness would mark a rebellious son. And if that is the case, are we not guilty of also in our own lives of saying no to our Father? When we are anxious, do we not often say, no, you do not have control over my life? Or when we covet, do we not say, no, what you provide for me is not enough? Or when we fall into the trappings of various desires, are we not saying, no, you do not satisfy? And if that is so, are we not also deserving of the same consequences of disobedience to our Almighty Father? If the rebellious son's failure is disobedience, we now look at how must he respond? You see, after telling the, uh, the parable, Jesus turns to the religious leaders and asks, which one of these two sons does the will of the father? And they all replied the first. Obviously, the rebellious son does not do what the father desires in his initial response, but he does the will of the father in his eventual response. Let us read verse 29 together again. And he answered, and the rebellious son answered, I will not, but afterward he changed his mind and went. Though he begins with blatant disobedience, it says afterwards he changed his mind. Now, I do want to look a little bit closer to this word, or at least in the English translation, changed his mind. In the Greek word, though it's not the most common use of it, it translates closely to the word as translated in the English word of repent. It is accurate to say that he changed his mind, but the reason why it is also related to the word repent is because a changing of mind is not something on a whim or it's not in a vacuum. You see, he changes his mind because having said no and having disobedient, disobeyed in the beginning, but the idea is that the disobedient or the rebellious son changed his mind in this way. He had a clearer understanding of who he was. He had a clearer understanding of who his father was. And by having a clearer understanding of himself and of his father, 
based on that premise, he changes his mind by understanding the gravity of his rebellion. You see, a changing of mind is not simply saying, I'm sorry, but it's first meditating and deeply reflecting on who we have offended, who is God, and how deep is our rebellion to him. You see, the response of this son is repentance. That is what he must do. You see, though he is not the ideal son, it's the first son that does the father's will in his repentance. We see this in David. You see, King David, as high of a pedestal as he has put put on, may we not be quick to forget that his sins are heinous. Not only did he covet Not only did he commit adultery, not only did he murder, but he did it because he forgot himself and he forgot his father. But you see, the reason why David is considered a man after God's own heart is not because of his sin. He is a man after God's own heart because he, like the first son, knew how to change his mind, knew how to repent. Even in his many sins, he was quick to recognize who his father was and quick to recognize his offense to his father. And this is where the more famous of the parables of the two sons really paints a picture of the response that the father has to a son who repents. You see, in the parable of the prodigal son, if we remember, it's the father who does not see the offense of the first son. It's not that he did not offend or commit sin against him, but rather the father is not quick to judge, but the father is quick to receive. The father does not want us to perish. The father wants us to live. The father loves the son who comes back and recognizes and and be embraced by the father. And we see that in the parable of the prodigal son. Likewise, it is for us today. Though we equally rebel against the Heavenly Father in our own disobedience, our Father's desire for us, even this morning, is for us to repent, for us to have a clear understanding of who He is, to have a clear understanding of our own sin, but also have a clear understanding that the Father does not shun us away, but His desire is to receive us. Now we look at the second son. The second son, I call him the religious son. And what is his failure? In verse 30, we see that just like the first son, the father tells the second son to come to the vineyard and work. And the second son, he's a sly one. He tells his father, yes, I will. And not only that, there is a subtle difference to how the second son responds to his father. And if we look, we might miss it, but he actually says in verse 30 at the end, it says, and he, the second son, answered, I go, sir. Now that word, sir, I believe is deliberate. I believe it's deliberate that Jesus uses that word, sir, to describe the second son. One, because he's talking to the religious leaders. And two, it's because that word in the Greek is kyrie or what we would know as Lord. 
It's the word that we use to address God. Kyrie, I go, sir. The second son uses this word, I'll obey, Lord. I'll obey, Father. And it's this idea that the second son, he knows what to say. He knows what to do. In fact, I don't want to read too much into it, but I'm sure he knows his father up here so well that he probably even knows that the father will command him to go to the vineyard. You see, it's, it's the second son who knows to walk the walk and talk to talk. He knows the right words. He has orthodox reformed theology, if you want to say. He knows how to worship the proper posture. He knows what tithing is and when to give it. He knows the type of words to say to Christians and the type of words to say to non-Christians. But what is his failure? You see, his failure is his pride. He takes pride in what he knows. He, pray, he takes pride in knowing all the right things. But his failure is that he has no intention of doing anything. He has no intention of doing the very thing that his mouth confesses. It's like our children who says, okay, I'm going to go to the store. I want you to do the dishes before I come back. Rarely do you see a child that says, no, I'm not going to do that. No, most of the time they say, yes, I'll do it. And I don't know about your kids, but there are other very disobedient kids out there in the world that when you get back and none of the chores are done, <laughs> they know what you want to hear. They know all the right words but they had no intention of doing it. See, it's, it's enough to know what to do. You just don't have to do it. You see, that's the idea that the second son has. Later on in chapter 23 in Matthew, Matthew gives us a fuller description of this religious son. And Jesus gives woes to the Pharisees, woe to the teachers of the law, and in the various woes that he gives to him is that woe to you who know what to do. In fact, not only do you know what to do, you go over and beyond what the law requires of you. One of the things he says is you know to tithe and you tithe the mints and the random garden herbs. You tithe even the things that the law doesn't even require of you. But their problem is that though they knew what to do, in their heart, they forgot what all of those meant and pointed to. In fact, his woe to them is that though you know what to do and you go over and beyond, you neglect the weightier matters. And he says, you neglect an to advocate for justice, to show mercy, and to be faithful to your father. He gives them woes to not only be clean on the outside, to be clean on the inside. And you see, this pride of the religious son is his failure because of the hypocrisy that he has and the way that he lives. How must he respond to his failure? In verse 32, Jesus reminds the religious leaders that John the Baptist came to show and to preach the way of righteousness. And in other words, he was John the Baptist came to tell the people and to the religious leaders how they were to respond to make right their relationship with their father. 
and you don't have to turn, but in Matthew 3, we show, uh, the, the scriptures show, or the, the gospels show, what the way of righteousness is. And John the Baptist is very clear. The way of righteousness is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And later on in the same chapter, he looks at the religious leaders and he tells them, John the Baptist tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, the religious son's response to his pride and his failure is to repent. Now, you may be thinking, I thought this was, a, this, I thought this was the response of the first son. It sounds very similar to the second son. And if you're thinking that way, it's because you're correct. You see, both sons disobey in their own ways, but the response is one and the same because though on the surface it may look like a unique sin, deep down inside, it's the same sin. It's the same sin because they are, whether they are disobedient or prideful, both fail to be the righteous son by neither trusting in God or finding a need for him. But I will give a woe to the religious son and that it is much more difficult for the religious son to repent. I've only been to, I guess I'm so used to calling it Johnson County. I don't think we're in Johnson County. But you know what I mean, right? I'm going to use Johnson County, and you can just fit that wherever you think it's, it's appropriate. We've been here about six months, and we've been warned about Johnson County. The affluence, the comfort, and maybe what's more close to home for us is the comfort of faithful pastors, faithful preaching, a solid community here at Christ the Redeemer, not having to worry about false teaching. You see, there's comfort everywhere. But my woe to the religious son in us is this. It is harder for the religious son to repent when he does not find a need in God. It's hard to see that you need God when all of your needs are taken care of. It's hard to fall before God and see your weakness and your brokenness when if we live our lives pouring our energy, time, and money and snuffing out suffering of various kinds in our lives. It's very difficult for the religious son to see their own sin and ask for forgiveness. You see, it's much easier for the rebellious son because if you're a drug addict, if you're an actual prostitution, if you have a temper and you beat your children and your wife, whatever the sin may be, it's apparent. They wear it on their sleeve. And for, for the rebellious son, those sins are evil before God, but it is much easier for them to recognize and confess their sin. But this is not so for the re religious son. It reminds me of kind of the common storyline for every zombie movie or show. 
it's not the healthy people that you need to, it's not the zombies that you need to be careful of. Why? Because you know who's a zombie. You could see it in them. You know what to expect. Who you need to be careful of are those who are healthy. Likewise for us, and likewise for me, if I can bring it home even personally, I say this in all humility and difficulty, but it is a blessing to have a wife who didn't go to seminary. It is a blessing to have a wife who is not as learned in, from the various teachings that I've received in, let's say, our own catechism. Why do I call it a blessing? It is a blessing because of this. Even while I was going through my ordination, which I got ordained like three weeks ago, up until then, it was a hard season, not only because I was preparing for my exam, because I was so strict in keeping to the orthodox traditions, and it was a blessing for my wife to see the discrepancy of my orthodoxy and my orthopraxy. She had first-hand experience of a man who knew all the right things to say and how I did not show it in my everyday life. And I call it a blessing because without her and other people around me who were close to me, who loved me enough to draw it out from me, I would have been the religious son. I would have been caught in my own pride and finding very little need for need of God to recognize my own sin. I think we are blessed to be in the PCA. I think you are blessed to be at Christ the Redeemer. I think your elders, your session, Randon and Billy, I've seen them be faithful in their service to this church. And I know and I am convinced that though with all of our flaws in the PCA, what we have in our Reformed tradition is the most faithful to the Scriptures and the most life-giving to its people. But I think there's a danger there that we could take comfort in it and not feel as though there are still sins within us, that there are weaknesses in us, and not only in ourselves, but for the people who need it so much more desperately than we do. Now I turn to my last point. We've looked at these two sons carefully, and we've seen their failures to their father, and we see, hopefully, how we are like them. And this is a bleak message. Praise be to God, this is not where I'll end. But what comfort do we have? What comfort do we have? And it's not, it's not that we're sometimes, we're only the rebellious son, we're only the religious son. You see, we're both of them, often, constantly. So what comfort do we have? What hope could we possibly rest in when we deserve every punishment for our disobeying and our pride before God? You see, the answer is found in the third son. Now, I see some of the heads going down and rereading the passage. There is no third son. You see, there is no third son in the parable, but there is a third son in this, in this passage. You see, Jesus Christ is that ideal son. 
see, Jesus Christ is the righteous son. Jesus Christ is the one who not only says yes from the beginning, but he says yes to the end. You see, Jesus Christ came for rebellious and religious sons like us. You see, Jesus Christ, he is the one who received the punishment deserved for the other two sons, even though he didn't deserve it. Jesus Christ received the righteousness that the first two sons had no place of receiving. Jesus Christ is the righteous son. And so I end with this. Beloved in Christ, my message today is not go and go into this week and do your best not to be obedient like the rebellious son. And it's not do your best and don't be like the religious son and be prideful. And though we ought to do our best to do these things, rather my message for us today is this. Remember that you are the disobedient and prideful son. And that God desires you and desires us to repent and to come before him at his feet with our sins. And though we are not perfect, we take and find our comfort in this, that our Lord Jesus Christ is the righteous son on our behalf. And that when we go before the throne of grace, the Father looks upon us as he looks upon Jesus, the righteous son. When the Father looks upon us, he sees you as the righteous son. Not because of your sin, not because of your pride, not because you're a good father or a good mother, not because you're a disobedient son or a daughter. It's because when he sees you, he sees the righteous son and who he was and what he did on that cross for us. And he takes pleasure in receiving us and correcting us and comforting us, strengthening us, so that we more and more may look like Jesus, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the people that you sit next to, and also for the joy and the hope of the people that are in Lee Summit and in your communities. So I pray that you find rest and joy once again in Christ, the true righteous Son. As 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 declares, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let's pray. O merciful Father, we come before you again. Father, you are holy, you are good, you are pure. Yet we come before you with our many sins and our brokenness and our shortcomings. Father, we ask for your help. We ask that your spirit may open up our ears so that we may see more clearly ourselves, more clearly our sins, and more clearly our Father. And we pray, Lord, for the strength and the courage to change our minds and repent before you. Father, we also do pray that you remind us of the comfort of what Christ has done for us. Our, the righteous son, our brother, 
the one who gave up his life for us so that many sons and daughters may come before the Father and be accepted and loved before him. I pray, Lord, that we may leave here, that we may not just simply do better with our behavior, but rather we first find rest and joy and comfort in Jesus and with gratitude and for the glory of your name. May we be more like him in our households, in our church, and even in our neighborhoods. Be with us, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.